How fashion and luxury will evolve in the face of disruption brought on by the pandemic, new technologies, and environmental and social concerns is a question top of mind for the industry. What will fashion look like in two, three, or 10 years' time? To answer it, we're spending 30 minutes each week with industry innovators leading the way through a changing landscape. I'm Hilary Milnes, and this is The Future of Fashion, The Innovators by Vogue Business. This podcast is sponsored by PayPal, the most trusted buy now, pay later brand, according to a recent survey, which gives merchants access to PayPal's 377 million users worldwide. Learn more at paypal.com slash paylaterenterprise. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Future of Fashion, The Innovators by Vogue Business. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes. Fashion supply chain was in the spotlight last year as retailers canceled orders in light of the pandemic, a decision that had a damaging ripple effect across the industry's network of suppliers and manufacturers. This has brought more attention to local sourcing, something that apparel brand American Giant knows well. Here to discuss American-made retail and how to lead a team during a crisis is CEO Bayard Winthrop. Thanks, Bayard, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Larry. Of course. So just to start, can you give us an idea of American Giant's supply chain? How does it work? Where is it all set up? And how did this approach influence and, and shape your brand? So we're entirely uh, made in the U.S., so our supply chain kind of definitionally is very local. And it is primarily either coming up in, in an East Coast supply chain that is primarily in the Carolinas or through the West Coast, through the LA Basin. But it's a it's a pretty close supply chain, and and that is very much foundational to the to the idea behind the company, which was, you know, I think in in our judgment, there has been a lot of decisions made over the last forty years, particularly in the apparel industry, that has resulted in the contortion of brands around highly complicated globalized supply chains that we believe have very bad implications for the environment and human rights and that there was a better way to do things. And uh, and one of the easiest ways to change the way that we are making clothes is to do them um, within the United States where there are very strong environmental controls and human rights controls and allowed us the proximity to be very close to the making of our things so that we can control quality. So it's pretty fundamental to the value structure of American Giant and why, why I founded the company. Yeah. And I'm sure those complications and implications that come with a very global supply chain were really driven home in the past year. And so what was your response to, I, you know, I think you could consider it a supply chain crisis um, in light of the pandemic with retailers canceling orders. Um, what was your response? We, we didn't know, frankly, how much of a crisis it was when it happened. I mean, you know, I think as, as we all, maybe it's almost hard to remember back now, but in March when the pandemic hit and and we're, we're a Bay Area company, our manufacturing is across the country, but our, our front offices are, are in the Bay Area. And when the shelter-in-place order happened in, in March of last year, uh, it just absolutely hammered our business. I mean, March was down 40 or 50% year-on-year. And at that time, it really felt like, boy, the, you know, the wheels may be coming off the business. And so we, uh, we had to act really decisively and quickly to what we felt was a kind of save the business moment that we had to really start canceling, to your point, canceling all sorts of things. One of the, the, the many things that came into focus during the pandemic was because we had built our supply chain with businesses that we have gotten to know very well and are many times generational family businesses, um, those ended up being quite personal phone calls with, with the men and women that run the, the businesses that we lean on to make our products. Because of that relationship and and the years that we've been working with these folks, 
uh, we were able to react very quickly. Um, I sort of tell a story that uh, it was a pretty remarkable moment calling all these leaders to say, we need help. We're in a tough spot. And, and really almost to a one, our supply chain responded by saying, you tell us what you need us to do. We'll do it. We'll partner with you on this to get through. So we were the beneficiary of, um, our supply chain and the, and the closeness of it, the proximity of it and the relationships that we have. And I think it would have been a, quite a different story if we were dealing with the lead times and, and the ocean times and the distance that is that many other fashion brands are kind of wound up in. And working through those difficult phone calls, those relationships and, and that action plan that was put in place after, you know, this really hard hit month, what was the solution? How did you kind of get back um, to normalcy? What was, uh, obviously, you know, you're, you're here, we're having this conversation. So how did the wheels get put back on? <laughs> well, I, I uh, woke up in the middle of the night and I wrote on a pad of paper, uh, really two thoughts that one was, we're going to get through the business is going to survive this. And the other was that we're not going to lay anybody off uh, as we navigated this thing. And that became those two sort of simple ideas became really clarifying uh, guideposts uh, that we began to navigate against. In March, that meant getting as aggressive as we could to uh, make sure that the business could survive. That looked like, to, as we just spoke about, canceling any inbound orders that were currently um, open for the business, canceling any software contract we could, stopping all recruiting. I took a big salary cut. We did a bunch of things that that were necessary to get the business stabilized in a in a rapidly changing uh, environment. Uh, my senior leaders took a salary cut, just a lot of teamwork and collaborative effort to navigate it. Um, but in our case, April recovered pretty well. May began to grow a little bit. And by June, we were growing very fast. And so um, thankfully, we we were we almost had the opposite problem from what we thought we were going to be into as we headed into the pandemic. In the midst of all that, and this too is sort of hard to remember, but there was a period of time there where we couldn't get nationally, we couldn't get protective equipment onto our frontline workers. And it was most acute in New York at that time that nurses and doctors couldn't get and fire, firemen, women and you know paramedics couldn't get face masks. And so uh, the CDC and FEMA reached out to a handful of domestic suppliers, us included, to convert our facilities into mask production, which we did. And so in the middle of all that, there was this added complexity of of really trying to do our part to get our facilities converted, the ones that we own, uh, converted into mass manufacturing. So it was just a period of, I think, uh, a lot of complicated logistical maneuvering that we needed to make sure that we were executing well on to make the business get through it. And then quite quickly afterwards, start to catch up again on inventory, which was a it was a, it was a, I don't mean hope we don't go through a year like that again, because it was a, it was a challenging year and uh, it, it required the, you know, flawless execution by a whole host of people, not least of which were the members of our supply chain that partnered with us to get through it. Right. And, and I'm sure going through a year like that, when it's like survival becomes the number one priority, like, what did you learn about, about running the business? Um, have you made any changes that you were like, oh, if this hadn't happened, we would never have probably come upon this, but now we operate a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about this a ton over the last year. It has changed our business pretty profoundly, I think, starting with me. You know, I think I have always been a leader that gave lip service to ideas of empowerment and, and delegation and you know, trusting your people and all these things that I would read in management books and 
always thought that I was doing a good job at. Um, I think with the with the pandemic and most acutely having our entire team kind of atomized into work from home situations where we weren't seeing people anymore and we weren't uh, sitting in the office together, was it required that we really delegate and really empower our, our team members to lead? And among the many things that I learned over the last year was the, the business actually got much more efficient as throughout the organization, leaders began to step into roles where they truly were running their individual areas of responsibility, maybe were untethered by senior people like myself who maybe have been you know, overly prone to micromanage and stay on top of because I wasn't able to maybe. And so as I watched that happen over the year and, and really started to see, my Lord, there are all these people that are doing these phenomenal jobs throughout the organization. It really caused a rethink, starting with me, about what my role ought to be and, and how effective I can be as a micromanager versus somebody that was empowering my, my team members to really step up. And that's been a fundamental change in the business. The business is just, you know, it feels just totally different today than it did a year ago as defined by uh, individual people really taking leadership positions in the company in ways that they have not before. It's changed my leadership style, I think, permanently. So that that has been one of the many silver linings of the pandemic for us, that it has changed the way that we're running the business and, and how I'm leading the company. Yeah. And, and so looking at, almost at the the high level, the industry-wide um, implications of, of all of this, uh, I think it's shed a lot of light and brought a lot of attention to this very delicate like power balance that that fashion has been operating off of, which is these supplier relationships. The brands obviously hold a lot of the power. Do you think that this will lead to that kind of, okay, there is a better way of operating. We do need to think about this a little bit differently and a reset in that relationship or I don't know, are you not that optimistic? I'm pretty optimistic because I think that there are a bunch of externalities that I think are increasingly putting this conversation into the middle of the room. And I think it kind of orients around pretty basically as an industry, does the apparel industry believe in some fundamental things like protecting the environment and protecting human rights? And it is just a reality that um, at a certain point, if there's sort of two sides to so much of the apparel industry, there's the Instagram side that sort of says we care deeply about the environment and global warming and all these things. And, and then there's the reality behind the curtain of how these businesses' supply chains are functioning. And I think that there's a real disconnect there. There's a real disconnect between the Instagram view of the world that's being presented to consumers and the business decisions that are being made behind the scenes. The pandemic, for a variety of reasons, brought that into sharper relief, I think. It exposed the fragility of the supply chain. It exposed some of the things that are happening in the places that the apparel industry particularly is manufacturing and making its goods that is causing consumers and policymakers and, and hopefully brands, though I think brands are a little bit further behind on this, to ask the uncomfortable questions about do we believe enough in the things that we're saying to actually change the way that we are making our clothes? I mean – you know that the apparel industry, unfortunately, is one of the worst uh, contributors to environmental problems. And uh, in terms of disposability and in terms of you know T-shirts being put onto boats that go for weeks at a time, burning very, very dirty fuel to on and on and on. And I think that that conversation, we need to be talking about more. The media does. The consumers need to be asking the questions. And I think that's starting to happen in a way, if our business is any indication, in a way that is changing pretty quickly, actually. And do you consider American Giant to be a sustainable brand? Is that how you kind of would phrase it? It's a good question because um, in some ways, the very structure of our business, our supply chain, 
is meaningfully more sustainable than the rest of the apparel industry because our stuff is made, if you just think about it, one of the benefits of the United States is that it has ensconced in law very rigorous environmental protections, very rigorous human rights protections. Things like worker safety, OSHA exists to protect workers in the workplace. Uh, the EPA exists to make sure that our farmers are are working in a way that is consistent with the best environmental practices that are out there, that are, are we're not dumping dyes into rivers. We're not uh, emitting a bunch of toxins into the environment through the smokestacks that we're using. So because we're domiciled in the United States, we are beholden by American law and, and around those areas. So I think just in that alone, yes. On top of that, I think American Giant really prioritizes proximity. And there's two reasons for that. One is we think we don't think the T-shirts should travel you know, 7,000 miles to get to the customer for $6. We think there's an inconsistency there that um, is bad for consumers, is bad for the environment. And two, that proximity allows us to be very intimately involved with the people that are making our product and the product themselves in ways that are harder to do when you're doing that in a very complicated globalized supply chain. And so better quality goods mean less things in landfills. And I think that's also a big piece of it, which is are you buying stuff that's going to last for a bit, that's well-made and so I think, yes, though it's, it's not something we beat our chest about, Hillary. I think it's something that we kind of want to walk more than we want to talk about it. But those component parts get to, in our view, sustainability. And sustainability is not just about environmental impact. That's a big piece of it. But the other piece of it is, are you taking care of your people and the places that are making things in ways that are durable and sustainable over the long haul? And I think that's really important, too. One thing we've written about on our side in our sustainability coverage is there are areas of agriculture that that fashion has started to warm up to, like organic cotton, regenerative farming. Um, as more demand is is coming from the brand side, the actual production side is is starting to have to catch up. And there's kind of this mismatch in, in, in supply and demand there. Um, but ostensibly, it, it is a good thing that there is more demand for things like organic cotton. Are you seeing that on the local production side? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, big picture, cotton as a, as a source material it has good and bad. On the good side, it's, it's organic, it's regenerative, it's better by most measures than, than synthetics that tend to uh, be derivative from petroleum and end up in landfills and don't really degrade. And so in general, cotton's, cotton's got some real positive to it. It's also, it's a pretty punishing crop to grow. It requires a lot of water. It requires a fair amount of pesticide use. So at the highest level, there's a handful of countries that are, are whose agricultural oversight and processes are first quality. Australia's in that camp. Uh, the U.S. is in that camp. But unfortunately, a lot of the cotton that is uh, in the supply chain of most major brands is not coming from those places. Some of it is, but but not the majority of it. The majority of it is coming from places that don't have pesticide use controls, for example, or, or water use controls. So in general, though the organic piece is important, um, it is a small piece of the picture. The much larger piece is where is the cotton coming from? Um, and there are, there are some very bad actors, unfortunately, in the production and the harvesting of cotton and then on through the supply chain. There's a, there's a big conversation right now about what's happening in Western China. As an example, um, there's a province in far Western China called Xinjiang that produces the vast majority of the cotton for China, 90 plus percent. And the majority of the textiles that are produced in China originate out of that region. So apparel brands that are manufacturing in China are, are involved in that supply chain, unfortunately. 
And there's a whole bunch of stuff happening with a minority Muslim population there uh, called the Uyghurs. There's about a million minority Uyghurs in Western China that are in forced labor camps or, or involved in that in that supply chain. And so I think that as we talk about this, I think the first order of business is to demand more accountability among our brands that they are sourcing things like cotton from places that are not employing forced labor or not employing child labor or respecting some base environmental practices. That does seem to be happening. I think the reason why I'm optimistic in general is that the policymakers are starting to come to the problem. Consumers are beginning to talk about it more and the brands are feeling the pressure. And so I think the collection of those things are going to result in, I hope, better sourcing on cotton, better sourcing about whether it's organic or conventional, just better practices. Um, so I, I am optimistic about it. I'm hopeful about it. Um, it certainly feels like it's gaining momentum as a conversation in the fashion industry, which it really ought to in my mind, because the fashion industry are leaders on a lot of these social issues. And and I think it's appropriate for it, for it to be kind of something that we're all talking about and holding ourselves accountable for. Right. And, and I think that question of where does the pressure need to come from? And, and it seems a lot of the narrative has been, okay, customers vote with their wallets. Customers want more sustainable uh, commitments from brands, especially talks around the the Gen Z customer being very value-driven. At the same time, if, if a $4 t-shirt is available and you have $10 in your pocket, that's what you're going to buy. Um, that only goes so far. And so do you think that, like, where do you see regulation from the government, which would I think really make brands put put their money where their mouth is. Where do you see that coming? It sounds like you're keeping it in mind. Yeah, I'll get a little wonky on you for two minutes, and apologies in advance for for more detail than than your listeners probably oh, want to hear about. But I think uh, just to distill it down, what's happened in, in in apparel over the last forty years? Apparel used to be a very simple, very localized thing. You know, in in, in 1980, the ninety seven percent of the apparel that Americans war was made in the United States. Today, it's it's inverted, about 3% is. During that 40 years, uh, from 1980 to 2020, to oversimplify it, what basically the bargain that we've made is we've said, we are going to let go of the making of things in, in apparel domestically. We're going to let go of the impact that's going to have on the towns and communities and the mills and uh, that we used to make those things. And we're going to allow that production to chase the cheapest means of manufacturing um, all over the world. And we know the stories that have come out of that from Bangladesh to China to Xinjiang, we were just talking about. What tends to happen in a totally unregulated capitalistic situation like that is producers are going to chase the cheapest means of production, the lowest environmental standards, the, the cheapest labor, the lowest human rights protections, frankly. And that's what's happened over the last 40 years, essentially. And the big apparel brands are, are complicit in that. And in, in many ways, um, because of their size and their, their legal capabilities and their, uh, the teams of people they have, they're able to most capably exploit the holes in our, in our trade agreements and the, the loopholes and the opportunities to go after those places that are not protecting the environment or not protecting human rights as effectively as I think in our judgment they should be. So the result of that has been $6 t-shirts. And it, I think it is very hard to ask a average consumer to uh, walk into a, a Walmart or a Target and really navigate that complicated question. It's quite simple to pressure policymakers to do that and to ask basic questions like, if we believe in these things, as, as it is ensconced in law in the United States, shouldn't we be holding 
uh, our biggest brands and our supply chain partners internationally to the same standard, certainly to the same standard that we're holding our domestic suppliers to. That's a profound and simple question that I think policymakers need to really wrestle with. That's one point. Um, and that, that's true with economic policy, too. And, and one of the dirty secrets is we've been sort of incenting the bigger corporations to chase cheap production over the last 40 years. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is retailers. I think Walmart and Target and Amazon have very important roles to play here. There are people getting fantastically wealthy off of the exploitation of these supply chains. And to the extent that that leaders like Doug McMillan at Walmart, who is standing up now and saying, for the next 10 years, we're going we're gonna to move towards buying $350 billion from American-made goods. A lot of that's food. Acknowledge that. But a lot of it's going to be textiles, too. That provides a structure for suppliers, brands, to say, okay, I got to start. That's a, if I want that business, I got to make it in the U.S. That's a good thing. So policymakers, retailers, and then brands. And I would just put out a challenge to the apparel industry broadly, which is what is the, the legacy that we want to lead? What are the values that we stand on? And do we need, as leaders of brands, need to be outspoken about this, confront it, and say there's an inconsistency here that we've got to reconcile with our customers, with ourselves, that we've got to start holding big brands, big brands that are making lots and lots of money to a higher set of values. Those three, I think, first. In my judgment, consumers are the fourth in line. Because I think consumers, if, if consumers begin to get, uh, and this happens, by the way, in the marketplace all the time, like think about automobiles and emission standards. We oftentimes quite effectively say at the policy level, we are going to begin to ratchet up our uh, regulations and drive down our emissions from automobiles by setting standards. And that has been quite effective. Uh, you know, emissions from cars now are, are much tighter today than they were 40 years ago. We need to have a similar thing with our trade policy and the manufacturing textiles, in my judgment, and consumers will follow. So does that then an execution, like, look, do you foresee like a tax on, on companies that don't fulfill um, certain standards? Uh, how, like, if you are a brand executive, how do you prepare for this potential? Well, I, uh, one, it has to happen over time. You can't obviously say starting tomorrow, every place you supply, you, you source from has got to have similar environmental protections and human rights protections as the United States, because it would, it would break uh, these the vast of these brands are so beholden to those supply chains that it has to ratchet in over time. So the first thing is it's got to come in over time, call it a decade. Uh, but then it has to be a, a progressive tightening down of, of those two basic concepts. Some of this is beginning to to make its way into trade negotiations. Um, a lot of the stuff that ha- that happened with the renegotiation of NAFTA, the renegotiation of our trading relationships with China really do find their roots in these conversations about is it okay to allow a country to pay a textile worker uh, below a fair wage. So I think those tough discussions about trying to set a level playing field over time and say, listen, we're happy to work with a whole bunch of countries internationally, but there have to be basic standards like a free press, worker protections, environmental protections, a functioning democracy so that people have an ability to vote, and that we are going to require that particularly our wealthiest companies that over the course of a decade are going to begin to get to tighten down what they are able to do uh, from a supply chain standpoint. I think that's the approach. It's got to come with from the retailers and from the policymakers first, and then the brands will comply, and then customers will have choice in the marketplace. And I think that's the key. Right now, customers don't have much choice. It's too much to ask, I think, the average customer walking into the store to try to make that decision on her own. 
So to to go back to then American Giant, I know obviously it's it's American made, um, but you also don't work with many outside retail partners. That level of control, part of the reason why I know, I think we had a conversation years ago and you said, you know, you would not see American Giant selling on Amazon. I probably said a lot of things years ago that I, I had were wrong. <laughs> uh, we, we don't have any plans to sell on Amazon. But I, but I do think that, uh, and that's not a, I don't mean that, that maybe came off a way I don't intend it. I, I just mean that to the extent that, let's just say, that Walmart uh, views American-made apparel as a key um, tentpole of their initiative, which I believe they do, by the way. And we could be productive there. We could move the conversation forward as both a spokesperson for the industry, uh, a connection to a domestic supply chain that really needs that kind of uh, commitment and uh, consistency of business. Uh, we would take those seriously, I think. Um, but we have no plans of doing that now, Hillary. And I, I, my guess is for the next couple of years anyway, you will see us only selling through our own retail stores and through our website. But you know, if the right circumstance came along where there was a big retailer that said, look, we're with you, we're shoulder to shoulder on this, we want to begin to build this this change into place, uh, we would take a hard look at that because I think there's a, frankly, there's a larger calling that we're all engaged in. And to the extent that American Giant can be helpful in that regard, we would take that really seriously. To be a sustainable brand, American-made brand, is there a certain scale that you are just comfortable achieving and rather than being the next billion dollar brand. Um, I, you know, we talk about degrowth a lot as a concept where brands need to be rethinking their profit um, and how they make money and just how much they need to grow in order to keep being in business. You know, that brings in questions of how do you stay sustainable as you grow? So how do you think about that when you think about the next stage of the company? That's a great question. I, we think a lot about pace. In my most optimistic moments, I think that the, we're going to see a great 25-year period of, of reshoring that's going to, I think, put a lot of vitality back into these lower middle-class communities that really need it in a really serious way. I really do think we're entering into that phase. And so I think the scale of businesses can get quite large there. But we think a lot about pace. And, and that's probably most relevant for us in quality, I think. And so as you think about growing really fast, and, and uh, you probably know this story, Hillary, that, that we, in, in our early days, we had some press that called our sweatshirt, which is kind of our marquee product, the greatest hoodie ever made. And that created a huge amount of, still our, by far our biggest seller, but it created a huge amount of back order and delay in our ability to make enough sweatshirts to meet demand. When you're in moments like that, where your demand is outstripping your current capacity, it gets very tempting to cut corners, cut corners by going overseas, cut corners by crimping on quality, whatever it might be. But it became clear to us, and we were, I think, in retrospect, lucky enough to be patient and maybe miss some of that growth by really committing to that quality control. So we think about pacing a lot, that what is an appropriate amount of growth we can handle each year to continue to deliver on our values? One of which is just delivering the best products in the market, the most durable, well-made products that you can find. So that that one does. And, and for those of you that have spent any time in textile facilities or sewing facilities, you realize pretty quickly that if you try to crank up the volume too much on volume, you can pretty quickly, you end up getting pretty wobbly on product quality. Other than cost, what are the reasons that a brand might not want to manufacture in America? Is that the biggest factor or is anything else standing in the way? Unfortunately, I think the the simple answer is in the United States, you have to pay people a living wage. And uh, if you pay somebody domestically $15 an hour and your alternative is to go pay 50 cents an hour in Xinjiang, that's a tough thing to reconcile. The math isn't quite that 
bad when you actually get into the, how that transits into the cost of a pair of jeans or a jacket or a t-shirt, but that's the idea. So I think, um, when we sort of said as a country, we're okay with that. We're going to let you chase the 50 cents an hour laborer. Uh, two things happened. One, everybody was wet. Everyone said, you know, that's easy math to do. I'll go do that. And what that did is it shrank pretty dramatically the, uh, the amount of business that was being run through textile facilities in the United States. And that ended up retarding innovation, investment in machinery, investment in automation, and all of that moved overseas as well. And so if you today go into a textile facility in Shenzhen or Guangzhou in China, typically you will see a more automated and updated and modern facility than you will see in North Carolina, for example. So there has been a gap there of just innovation and investment. So now that's compounded. The original problem about just labor is that there's a bit of a technology gap. That's actually catching back up again. And so I think that miss is, is kind of it, the textile businesses that have survived have invested. So that gap is closing, thankfully. But the labor gap remains. Brands don't have an incentive right now to pay American workers because it's more expensive. I'd argue we should. It's a good thing. But not, not every brand leader agrees with me on that one. So you're optimistic about the potential for reshoring. So do you see that like starting to change? just the innovation gap and the ability to pay wages here? Yeah, I, I think the things that are encouraging are uh, there's a huge amount of capital moving in uh, in the private equity markets and the venture capital markets that are taking hard looks at reshoring opportunities. So that's encouraging. That helps. Uh, you've got policymakers um, really beginning to pay attention. President Biden has taken a real leadership role about this and seems to be very serious about it. He's got uh, a lot of attention to the administration thinking about what we're going to do to begin to help um, breathe new life back into these communities. That's encouraging. You've got brands and retailers like Walmart putting a stake in the ground and saying, we recognize that this is something that is important, long-term important for us to begin to assess. I mean, those are Walmart's customers, right? The people that need those jobs are Walmart customers. And they are logically saying, we got to start to reinvest. It's not enough that we our strip mine in the country and all making a lot of money, we got to think about investing back into the communities and the places and our customers where they live and work. So they're, they're stepping up. Um, and then you see that beginning already to begin to filter down into the U S supply chain. You begin to see work picking up. You get you, our factories are stretched. Uh, we're having a harder and harder time getting, getting slots into, into sewing facilities and yarning facilities and, and knitting facilities to get the products that we uh, need because and we're growing. <laughs> so I think, yes, we're seeing basically everywhere real signs of encouragement. It's still early, but but the, the momentum seems to be building quickly. Yeah. So if you are a designer or a brand founder wanting to launch an apparel brand, what advice would you have for them if they wanted to to build an American made business? Like how do you how do you get started? Uh, not to be pithy about it, but you start. And, and so what I, what I mean is that you just, you got to kind of get in. And, and I think one of the huge advantages when you're uh, early and starting a business is the privilege and opportunity to get into facilities and talk to uh, the mills that are making your fabric, uh, the, the cut and sew facilities that are sewing them. Because when you have that degree of proximity, when you're, particularly when you're getting going, your understanding and execution of the product you're trying to make is enhanced by orders of magnitude. So you have an, an implicit advantage on the product side of things. There are some difficulties about navigating a domestic supply chain, but in my judgment, they're more than offset by the complexities of a globalized supply chain. 
I learned next to nothing over the last 10 years sitting behind my desk. I learned virtually everything being inside of factories. And I think uh, that's my advice is reconnect back with the fact that most of the, clo- the clothes you wear start as an agricultural crop. Get into the facilities that are knitting that yarn and that are spinning that yarn and that are dyeing those, that fabric. And as you begin to have that intimacy with the products that you make return, good things come. You, you get, I think, more confidence in your ability to put great products into the market. And a value system is going to likely emerge about how much that proximity and those people matter. And I think that all gives you a leg up in the market, particularly in the early days. You're right. Um, I wonder if uh, now is is a good time to start a new business or not, but uh, <laughs> I guess we'll see. Well, we're just about out of time, but uh, just to leave us off, what is next for you coming up this year? What's next for American Giant? Well, there's a lot going on. We're a big believer in retail stores, physical stores. So we're, we're opening up stores uh, quickly now. Um, and so that's a big initiative that's exciting and fun as the brand's beginning to push into uh, new cities for us. Uh, with physical locations. And there's a lot of really fun stuff happening on the product side. I think back to your original question about as that uh, the marketplace begins to gather steam, um, one of the benefits is that it's opening up more opportunity from a product standpoint. So we've got a bunch of new products coming that I'm totally excited about, many of which are kind of basic everyday sweats that are at price points that are starting to look pretty competitive with all the people that tell you you can't do that stuff in America. So there's just a bunch of stuff there that just was really on the product side, just super exciting, beautiful fabrics, beautiful silhouettes at great prices and just excited about um, really, I think what all this momentum is beginning to translate into, into what we're able to now do as a company. So those are two that are, get my heart beating. Great. Well, excited to see you. Um, thanks, Spide, for for joining us. Always great to chat. And yeah, thanks for the time. Thanks for having me, Hillary. Join us next week for a new episode of The Future of Fashion by Vogue Business. You can find all our shows from this series on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Vogue Business website. For more coverage on the future of fashion, subscribe to the Vogue Business newsletter at voguebusiness.com. My name is Hillary Milnes. That was The Future of Fashion. Thanks for listening. This podcast is sponsored by PayPal the most trusted buy now, pay later brand, according to a recent survey, which gives merchants access to PayPal's 377 million users worldwide. Learn more at paypal.com slash paylaterenterprise.